0: So we're in Exodus chapter 20 tonight, Exodus chapter 20, and we are going to look at verse 3 to 11, um, the first four commandments. Uh, So Exodus 20, 3 through 11. And we kind of went over this, we went over the introduction, the first two verses last Wednesday night, but remember the first four commandments focus on our conduct towards God, right? And the next six commandments Focus on our conduct toward one another. So conduct matters, bottom line. (laughs) Conduct matters. What we do and say matters. How we act matters. Like our reactions matter. Our words matter. Conduct matters. So tonight we will focus on the first four of the Ten Commandments, and we're gonna look at what our conduct toward God ought to be, what it should be. And again, these are these are guidelines that are universal for believers everywhere. Uh, the Mosaic Law is civil law and was just for the Israelites. Uh, like we said last week, the 10, are for, the Ten Commandments are for every follower of the Lord. And that's what, just to review boundaries. Remember, boundaries help us not to cross lines where God is not. The Ten Commandments help us to stay close to the Lord in total dependence. And so the title tonight is Boundaries. <laughs> so God spoke From Mount Sinai, remember to the children of Israel in an audible voice, and he would now verbally give the Ten Commandments or the law. And here's God's standard, and really it's the Lord's heart for the people. And this is one of the main reasons we journey through the Word of God, week in and week out, so we can get to know God's heart and follow him. So we can know what he wants of us, right? It's important. So we can be obedient to him and with his strength, do his will and follow his way. It's like if you get a job, you, you want to know what the boss wants, how he wants it done or she wants it done, so you can do it that way instead of like, I'm going to guess and see if I'm getting trouble or not. No, you want to know. You want it spelled out for you. You want it uh, uh, like a manual, like a guidebook to help you. And so I followed my own way when I was a teenager, believe it or not. <laughs> and because of it, I ended up in a whole bunch of horrible places in juvenile hall later in a mental institution i ended up in jail i ended up depressed suicidal empty and alone i tried my own way didn't work and then the lord pulled me out of the mud of the world and thank god and i know you guys can testify too and thank god he rescued me and now i want nothing else than to follow his will and his ways because i know what it's like apart from him you guys know what it's like apart from him And I know we all have a a true story where the Lord rescued us and pulled us out of the miry clay, like Psalm 40 says. We often dug ourselves into that pit, you know. The reason why we hit bottom is because we had a shovel and we we were digging. The Ten Commandments are invitations. We looked at that last week as well. They're invitations to live in a way that glorifies the Lord and keeps us on the right track so we explicitly know what is moral and right. Now, again, it was built into us to know, but here we have it verbally from God. And in Exodus chapter 30, we have it written on tablets by the finger of God. And you remember we were talking about like, yeah, the Ten Commandments are pretty important. God verbally told the people, millions of the Israelites, and he also wrote it with his finger on tablets. Like, it's pretty important. It's a schoolmaster. It shows us our sin and need for the Lord. So, these laws are pretty important. Let's pray and then we'll get into the verses tonight. Well, Heavenly Father, again, we just thank you for your word. We just thank you for this time to gather together in your name, to worship you and fellowship, and now get into your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would just speak to our hearts tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So, verse three, and let me just start one and two, even though we went over it last week. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. In verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. So the first commandment, no other gods before me. In the ancient world, the people worshiped multiple false gods, like a whole bunch of them. They had a God for everything, God for the sun, the moon, the sky, the water, like everything. Back in this day, you never heard of atheists because most people were polytheists. They believe in a whole bunch of plethora of God's, And here's an amazing thing about Yahweh or the Lord. He set himself apart from any of the supposed deities. He set himself apart. He was and is holy. That's what holy means. God's so wise that in these first few verses, he really taught about who he is, facts about his nature. Like the Lord desired to let the people know clearly who he was, right? I mean, in Egypt, which is a type of the world, right? Egypt, type of the flesh, the world. The facts about the one true God were hidden or skewed. So here, the Lord wanted to audibly, you know, bring transparency to the millions that he had rescued out of bondage. God gives clarity about who he is. And aren't you glad? I'm so blessed I don't have a faith that's based on ambiguity or assumption. Like I have a faith built on fact, archaeology, geography, science, history, we have a faith that is based on evidence. I just want us to think like about a few facts regarding the one true God. God is above nature. He created it. He's above nature. God is personal. He's good. He's holy. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. So the first commandment flowed from comprehension of who God was and what he had done for Israel. Because of who he is and what he's done, nothing should come before him. He was the only God to worship and serve. And again, in ancient Israel, there were tons of gods to worship, and people were tempted to serve these gods, right, all the time. Everyone did it. Everyone was doing it. So yeah, I'll worship a bunch of gods too. Sounds cool. Like, you know, the crowd mentality It was group influence. Again, crowd mentality stuff. They They were the gods of materialism, like Baal, the god of weather and success. There were gods for everything. We have a whole bunch of kids here tonight, so I won't get into the next one. But there are gods for everything, and really a whole list of local deities, tons. Many worship the same gods today, but they don't use ancient names and old-fashioned images. People worship money. That's a big one in America. Status. They worship other people. There's a whole bunch of shows and magazines to help you to worship other people, you know. Idols are made of things, and people put all kinds of stuff above or ahead of the Lord. Like, human nature is like an idol factory. Someone said that. I don't even know. Human nature, it's like an idol factory that is in constant operation. So we have to be careful. And that's the thing. Satan distracts us, so we take our eyes off of God. I I just wish it was easy just to focus on God 24 hours a day. Don't you? I wish it was just kind of easy. It's like, yeah, no brainer. But then we wouldn't have faith and we wouldn't have to take initiative. Then we wouldn't have to seek the Lord ourselves. But it's so much more difficult to seek the Lord in this distraction-filled world because there's so many things that try to pull and vie for our attention, pull us away from God. We deal with all kinds of temptations to to set everything before God pretty soon he's way down on the list. We don't even know what number he is because we're like, well, if I have time for you, right? The Lord must be preeminent or have preeminent, uh, preeminent place in our lives. If Is God preeminent in your life? Is he priority? Is he number one, right? Sometimes we subconsciously place things before God. It's not like, you know what? I'm going to place a whole bunch of stuff before God this morning. And when I go to work, I'm going to place all of this stuff before him. We don't like consciously do that. I don't know anyone who does that, but Subconsciously, we set things before God and we get consumed with those things and we bring on our own struggles because our priorities are out of order. So we have to be intentional, we have to be conscientious, we have to think about these things and, and put God first. And he says, No other gods before me. This does not mean you should have other gods after him, right? Like like God is the first and only true God, right? Like, I I put him first, so the other gods, uh, they'll come second, third, and fourth. No, just God. The idea is there should be no gods before the sight of the one true God in our life. And you know, um, this is one of the reasons why, I don't know why I'm just thinking this right now, it's not my notes, but this is one of the reasons why Oprah doesn't worship the God of the Bible, because she says, he's jealous, that just doesn't seem right. And so she doesn't worship the God of the Bible, but it's because of a misunderstanding, He says before me. Before me is translated to my face. This means that the Lord demands we give him our whole lives, every part of who we are. He's not just to be an add-on. Do you know what I mean? Like a lot of books out there, like Jesus and, Jesus and, God and. But he's not an add-on. He's not just an add-on. Failure to obey this first commandment, it's called idolatry. Right? Let me just give you a, a picture of idolatry according to God's word. And I'm not going to do the verse references. I'll just act, like, quickly explain. The Bible says we are to flee idolatry. Run away from it. You see it? Go. Get out of here. Those who have habitual idolatry won't inherit the kingdom. The Bible says idolatry is a work of the flesh. We are, the Bible says we are not to associate with those who call themselves Christians, but are idolaters. So idolatry is a daily temptation, so we must watch and pray. Like Jesus said in the garden, watch and pray. Don't get swept away. Like, don't let anything come before the Lord. It's easier said than done, right? Because there's a lot of busyness, there's a lot of stress out there, there's a lot of to-do lists, there's a lot of stuff we've got to do, and, and sometimes God gets lost in the mix, and we realize, man, my heart's in turmoil, I'm unsettled. Why? Oh, I haven't prayed. Oh, I haven't even looked in His Word. Oh, I haven't even thought about Him today. And the fact is, your faith will be in what you focus on. Like, what are we focused on? The question is, what are we focused on? So, you shall have no other gods before me. First commandment. The second commandment, verse 4 to 6, says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to those, or to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make yourself a carved image. Right? This commandment prohibits idolatry and making an image to be worshipped. It's kind of like when, when the, uh, uh, in the major prophets, when they were preaching the word, uh, the image carvers, they started losing work and they were mad because they're like, I don't have any work. Everyone's worshipping the one true God. What the heck? You guys start worshipping these false gods. I need to make money. Like He was mad. But some take this commandment to mean not to have any paintings of Jesus or pictures of uh, spiritual things. But most believe in the literal interpretation of not making an image or worshipping that image instead of worshipping God. And uh, Deuteronomy 4.12 Moses wrote that the Lord spoke audibly, but they saw no form. So the principle here is that the worship of God was word-based, not image-based, right? Worship was tied to idealized images and images in the mind. God, God says, don't depict me with any such image and don't replace me with another image. Don't worship an object. Don't worship an image or a relic or whatever you want to call it. It's It's not like this command forbade drawing a painting of a dove or a cross, you know. Like we have an arrow-shaped eye as a symbol, right? But we don't worship it. We're not bowing down to it, right? God made, you know, God himself told Israel, actually, in Exodus 25, 18, he told Israel to make an image of a cherubim. But this command, it's about the heart. It's about the heart. Like, are you making this image to replace God? Don't do that. <laughs> Bottom line: Just don't do that. Certain religious disregard certain commands. You know, uh, certain denominations have taken this commandment out, actually, out of the Ten Commandments, and they've broken up the tenth commandment into two commandments to keep it at ten. And they worship relics, or so they they hold them in high esteem. And this is why, in John four twenty four, Jesus said to worship God in spirit and truth. The worship of other objects and material things denies who God is and how we should worship Him. And the Apostle Paul, he wrote about this, the danger and futility of trying to make God in our own image. Let me just read to you Romans chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, which says, "...professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man." and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things." Not good. We only worship God. You know, some people even uh, accuse uh, Calvary Chapel of worshiping the Word because we're so heavily focused on the Word. They're like, you guys, just you're you're Word-worshiping. You're worshiping the Bible. We're like, no. Like, we worship the God of the Bible, and He gave us this to know Him and to know what to do in life. And so we don't worship the word, we worship the God who has given us the word and we follow what it says, right? But we hold it in high esteem. It says, God says he holds his word higher than his name. That's pretty important. The word is pretty important. He says, for I, the Lord, am your God. I'm a jealous God. God insists on being supreme. And this is a good thing because he's not a dictator. He's not someone who's trying to hurt everyone. He should be preeminent in our daily lives. He refuses to share The human heart with any rival, not because God is selfish, it's because he wants our loyalty and us to worship him. He's jealous for us. He's jealous. God's jealousy is actually love in action. And it's been said, a better translation to jealous is actually zealous. Jealousy or jealous is sort of has a bad connotation. You know, we think of it in negative terms, But another translation is God is zealous for us. He wants us to look to him only because he knows what's best for us. He doesn't want us to get hurt. Like your parents out there, you don't want your kids to get hurt. So you have boundaries. So you make sure they're doing what you said, not because you're a mean parent, but because you want them to be safe. It says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. This does not mean God punishes people directly for the sins of their ancestors. The critical words here are of those who hate me. If the descendants love God, they will not have the iniquity of the fathers visited on them. And so here's the thing. This necessarily implies if the children walk in the steps of their fathers, for no man can be condemned by divine justice for a crime of which he was never guilty. Clark said that. Another commentator said children who repeat the sins of their fathers evidence it in personally hating God. Hence, they too are punished like their fathers. Yet, the focus here is on idolatry, and this refers to judgment on a national scale. Nations that forsake the Lord will be judged, and the judgment will have effects throughout generations. There is such thing as influence, but the Holy Spirit is our eye-opener, if you will. Like there's nowhere in the New Testament where a generational spirit is more powerful than the power of the Holy Spirit. The born-again believer has the power of the Holy Spirit, and there's nothing more powerful than that. It's possible for everyone to receive God's mercy if they will turn to God in love and obedience. Now we have to be Bereans so that these Kind of teachings like generational spirits can be disregarded. It reminds me of slain in the spirit. They take a little passage and they make a whole big thing out of it. My my dad was an alcoholic. Growing up, he neglected me. He chopped wood outside drunk while I was in watching TV all day. Like, no, you know, uh, no connection or whatever. He was an alcoholic. But the spirit of alcohol didn't control me. I said, I'm not going to do that, even though I I did drugs. (laughs) I did something else, but I was like, you know what? I hit bottom, and the Lord rescued me by his Holy Spirit. He saved me, and I'm like, I don't ever want to do that again, and I didn't. Of course, when I was in that mental institution, my counselor was like, "Uh," you know, he basically coaxed me into saying it's my dad's fault, and I had to confront my dad. So my dad came in, they had brought him in, and I had this whole confrontation thing, even though I felt weird about it and wrong about it, and I was like, Dad, this is all your fault. So I didn't have to take any responsibility for myself. And later, I I apologized to him because I was like, I'm sorry, I just made dumb decisions. It was my fault. I can't blame you for this. I have a choice. You have a choice to say, no, no, I'm not going to go down that road. The power of God is stronger than any stronghold. And if I did become an alcoholic, I wouldn't sit there and and blame my parents. I would take responsibility. This is my fault. I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have went down this road. Also, Jesus, Paul, or anyone in the New Testament never addressed it. There's a difference, though, between a, a curse, a stronghold, and a bondage. The connotation of a curse is that the next generation is doomed. The definition of a stronghold is there is some things, sin that is hard to resist, and it brings you down. Bondage is letting the sin win and disregarding the power of the Holy Spirit. Every person has free will, and yes, environment has influences. There are people that are very damaged from the upbringing that they had. But with prayer, the Holy Spirit, with counseling and all that, I've seen so many times where they broke through and they're like, I'm done. I- I'm not going to let that define me. Freedom. There's freedom in Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit is not the more powerful. Verse 7, third commandment. Okay, third commandment. It says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So let me just give you a few ways that this command is often disobeyed. Profanity. Using the name of God in blasphemy or cursing. And this totally dishonors the Lord. It's kind of like when someone says it at work, I kind of cringe, but when they're around me, they're like, oh, sorry. And they like try, and I'm like, no, I don't like to hear that. Like it's just using the name of the Lord as a cuss word. Not good. Frivolity is the second thing. Using the name of God in a superficial, stupid way. <laughs> Basically, being flippant about it. Hypocrisy claiming the name of God, but acting in a way that disgraces him and misrepresents him. So Jesus communicated the idea of this command in the disciples' prayer when he taught us to have regard to the holiness of God. Remember hallowed? He says, hallowed be your name. What does hallowed mean? Well, it means revered. It means honored. Man, his name is powerful. And you guys know that. I think when you're going out there and you, you say, Mohammed, oh, yeah, 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 Siddhartha, like, yeah, yeah, cool, Buddha, whatever. You know, you say all those things. People are like, oh, that's great. Jesus, whoa, oh my God. And they, like, they freak out, man. They're like, Jesus, what, what are you talking about? They're, it's powerful. Like, there's power in the name of Jesus. Because it, it really demands, not demands, it really, the connotation there is life change. Oh, I'm fine the way I am in sin and darkness and depression. Like, no, you know, and it's like, it's powerful. We don't have flippant faith. There's power in his name. And I can't, it's hard when people make a mockery out of the Lord. But ultimately, end of the day, he will not be mocked. The Bible says God will not be mocked. It says, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The strength of this command has led traditions, interesting traditions, strange traditions among the Jewish people. Some go to extreme measures to avoid violating this command, refusing even to write the word God in the fear that paper might be destroyed and the name of God be written in vain. Now, the Jews' devotion is commendable. They were very serious about their faith, right? They were very devoted and reverent, but they were also adding laws to the commands of God that are not from God, which is not good. Legalism is adding the word, uh, adding to the word of God, and making a conviction a command. Right, making a conviction a command. God's commands should be our convictions generally, but our convictions specifically, we shouldn't turn into God's general commands. You know what I'm saying? Like that's my conviction, but you should all do that too. You know? No. There's one thing to fear God. It's one thing to fear God and be obedient. It's another thing to fear not following God's commands, and so living in paranoia. Don't flippantly use the Lord's name in vain, is the point there. And the fourth commandment is in verse 8 to 11, which says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So the command is to respect the seventh day, Saturday, as a day of rest. And this was rest for all Israel. The sons, the servants, the strangers, even the cattle. So here the Lord declared the essential essentially like equality of all of mankind by saying, hey, they all have the right to rest. And this was a controversial concept in the ancient world. It says, to keep it holy. God wanted people to have a sacred time in their life, a separated time of rest. And religious Jews attempted to get specific with what people could and could not do on the Sabbath. In Luke chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, the Jewish leaders saw taking a bite of grain in the field as four violations of the Sabbath. You took a bite of grain in the field. They were reaping and threshing and winnowing and preparing food just by taking a bite. In other words, they were extreme. (laughs) Ancient rabbis actually taught that on the Sabbath, a man could not carry something in his right hand or in his left hand, across his chest or on his shoulders, but he could carry something with the back of his hand, his foot, his elbow, or in his ear, his hair, or in the hem of his shirt, or in the shoe or sandal. (laughs) Or on the Sabbath, Israelites were forbidden to tie a knot, except a woman could tie a knot in her girdle. So if a bucket of water had to be raised from a well. An Israelite could not tie a rope to the bucket, but a woman could tie it to her girdle to the bucket and pull it up from the well. <laughs> so they added all of these things to specify what God made general, if you will. He says, for in six days, the Lord made the heavens and earth. God established the Sabbath at the time of creation. God told them to remember to rest. The term Sabbath derived from the Hebrew verb to to rest or cease from work. And the Sabbath, it was really a preview of the rest that we have in Jesus. Like other passages, we understand this with the perspective of the whole Bible. Like there's a real sense where Jesus fulfilled the purpose and plan of the Sabbath for us in Hebrews 4, 9-11. Hebrews 4, 9-11 says, There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God, aren't you glad? Because we need rest. (laughs) For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. So he is our rest when we remember his finished work. And that's the thing, under the New Covenant, like no one is under obligation to observe a Sabbath day, a specific Sabbath day. You can, that's great. A lot of people are like, Sunday's my Sabbath, I go to church, and we just relax and rest and don't do any work. That's totally cool. But Galatians 4.10, let me tell you this. Galatians 4.10 tells us that Christians are not bound to observe days and months and seasons and years. So the rest that we experience in practice should be every day, not just once a week the rest in knowing that we are not saved by works, we're saved by grace. And Hebrews 4, 9 and 10 talks about that. In the new covenant, rest is experienced in Christ daily. So it's not like, you know, I'm going to strive six days a week and stress out like crazy, and then I'm going to rest. It's like, no, we have rest in our hearts through any every circumstance, or we can, but we have to find our rest in Jesus. Since Since the shadow of the Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus, we're free to keep any day or no day as a Sabbath day. Yet, we must not neglect the importance of the day of rest. God has built us to need rest. Without rest, what's going to happen? We're going to be wrecks. We're going to be, I mean, you're going to be exhausted. It's not going to be good. Like, we were created to take a break and take a breath and cease from work. If not, what's going to happen? We'll burn out. I know many of us have been there. I'm burnt out. I did too much. We were created to work, yes, but we were also designed to rest. And some Christians are, are also dogmatic about observing Saturday as the Sabbath as opposed to Sunday. But because we are free to regard all days as given by God, it makes no difference. But in some ways, think about it, Sunday is more appropriate. Think about this. Just an idea here. But being, it's, Sunday is the day Jesus rose from the dead It's the first, you know, and first met with his disciples on Sunday, right? And it was a day when Christians gathered for fellowship. But under the law, men work towards God's rest. But after Jesus finished work on the cross, the believer enters into rest and goes from that rest out to work. Like, we have rest in our hearts, yet we work on a regular basis. And I like what one pastor said, uh, Damian Kyle, I love him, he's a Calvary Chapel guy in uh, California, Great teacher, very slow and boring, but I don't care. I love the content. It's great. Um, but he said, You know what? Sunday is an appropriate day to have church, he said, because most people don't work on Sunday. So it's a good day to have church. He said, You know what? If most people had Tuesday off, I would have church on Tuesday because we've got to gather together. Most people have it off. Just remember, we have rest, though. We have rest in Christ. But we are also commanded to work six days. He who in the Old Testament, he who idles his time away in the six days is equally culpable in the sight of God as he who works on the seventh. Many Christians should give more leisure time to the work of, or many Christians should give more, yeah, leisure time that they do. It's, they should work for the Lord instead of so much leisure time. Like every Christian should have a deliberate way to serve God and advance the kingdom of God, right? So maybe, maybe it's dropping a hobby to feed the homeless. I don't know. Maybe he's taking a break from putting puzzles together. I don't know. Or to pray more. Maybe it's uh, you. you, So you know, I'm not going to watch that series, that that Netflix series right now. Instead, I'm going to go out and share my faith. Life is off balance if we are not serving the Lord and being about his business. So anyway, all, all that to say, the first four commandments are concerning our relationship towards God. And that's the most important thing. And next week, we're gonna, it's not next week. The week after, because next week's a worship night. We're going to see the last six commandments, which is about our relationship to one another. So.